We get a lot of questions about where to buy things, what the best part for the job is, where and how to route those harnesses, and numerous other questions from Slip Angle listeners and readers of Tracktune.com. When it comes to safety gear, there are very serious questions answered. If you're like most of our listeners, and you have a car you race, track, or autocross, you should check out the best in the safety parts business, OG Racing. OG Racing's friendly staff are incredibly well-versed in the products and the installations of the parts they sell. They can assist you in not only purchasing the safety gear for your car, but also answering questions on installing and using them correctly. Helmets, suits, shoes, nets, and other safety gear aren't all they sell and support. They also carry a huge array of trackside gear and car parts. Everything from scales and fuel cells, gauges and battery chargers, and everything else in between. OG Racing carries all the brands you're looking for great prices on, and with over 25 years in the business, OG Racing is a name you can trust to sell you top quality parts and products at a great price. Check them out on the web at ogracing.com, or call them up at 1-800-934-9112. You should buy the most important parts of your car, the parts that keep you safe, from somewhere you can trust. Trust OG Racing. Again, that's www.ogracing.com or call 1-800-934-9112 and tell them Slip Angle sent you. Welcome, everybody, to Slip Angle Show. I'm Austin Cabot. I'm Adam Jabay. What's up, man? How What's you doing? What's going on? Not too much. Uh, tonight, we actually have the man who pretty much wrote the book or the books on driving, uh, Mr. Ross Bentley himself. Yeah, welcome, Ross. Good to have you, man. I'm looking forward to this. Um, I've enjoyed your shows all, all along, so... Uh, Maybe we can have a little fun. Hopefully, I won't bring it down too much. I won't bring your level I, down too much. So. I don't think I, it's going to be a problem. Yeah, Ross. I, don't, I don't think we can get any lower at this point. Yeah, no. We'll work on it. <laughs> yeah, the the, uh, the last few shows have been a little fun. Cody was tired. Love the Love yeah. Fab show. Cody sounded tired, but other than that, we're good. High, high quality guests, low quality content. <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> Is that your motto? Or no, but uh, I guess it, it could if, be. I, I, I don't if know. we had a motto, it would fit. But, yeah, <laughs> we don't know uh, what well, we're doing. I've actually never been on a slip angle with Ross before. It's only been uh, the couple that Austin did with you. Yeah. Uh, so it's cool to have you on on our show. Um, and uh, you've been you've been busy with podcasting lately, Ross. You've been on uh, a lot of shows and you've been doing some of your own. So how's that going for you? Uh, it's been fun. Uh, the whole podcasting thing is new to me, and and I guess what I've really enjoyed about it, and it's probably the same thing with you guys, is you know it's it's well, the great thing about this sport are the cool people you meet and talk to, and you know I just I'm a learning junkie, so I the fact that I get to get people on my show and ask them a bunch of questions and learn from them, uh, that's that's a is a great excuse to uh, suck information out of other people. So that's been fun. And uh, I've been on a couple other shows recently. It just seems like podcasting's uh, becoming more and more popular. So it's a little bit incestuous with the, the, uh, the car shows like the, you know, the not, the, not the ones that just talk about, you know, new Lamborghinis, but there's only about what a half a dozen of us maybe. So, <laughs> but yeah, there, yeah. And there's a, I think there's a total of uh, 20 people that listen to all of our shows, right? <laughs> Just over and over and over. Collectively, yeah. 
Yeah. Thank you yeah. to those 20 people. Yeah, we, we need them. We need them. Otherwise, we're talking to nobody. But. Yeah. Yeah, Austin and I had a good time talking to old friend of yours, Jeff Brown, uh, a little while ago. Um, I, I listened to that. Uh, yeah, Jeff is one of my best friends. In he's motorsport. so fascinating. He's so he fascinating. Is. Yeah. We could have talked to him for hours. Family. Just their whole family is just it's it's actually mind boggling how great a people they are. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Austin and I are looking forward to sitting down with him in person someday. We got to meet him somewhere. But yeah, yeah, some track um, somewhere. Yeah, the, it sounds like the middle of Texas might be probably our closest location if uh, if all of us uh, drive a distance or if, if the two of us drive a distance, and that's a long way from both of us. I think. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah I'm disappointed that, you know, I've known Jeff since, uh, I guess, I think that was 90, 1993, 94, somewhere in that range that we first worked together, met and worked together. And all that time, I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's like one of these days I got to go and visit uh, at, visit Jeff at their home and Diane and check out the go-kart track and all that kind of stuff. And it just never has worked out. So over 20 years, I never had a chance to go and visit there. One of these days. You've never gotten lost in the middle of Texas and uh, found yourself there? Uh, I've been lost so, in Texas, but not... It sounds like he's in the middle place. of nowhere. It sounds like he's no he's in like no man's ranch land out there. But See, if, if um, I was Jeff, I would have done the same thing. Jeff's a great guy and knows a lot of people, but that means wherever he lives, the people are in town, they're going to ring him up and steal some of his yeah, time. Just yeah, disappear. Huh? Yeah, so he's got to be out in the middle of nowhere where you, know, you actually have to make a very 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 concerted effort it's not a, a convenience thing where it's like hey i'm in town we should yeah. grab dinner he yeah. needed to park he needed to park his go-kart track that he built at his house far away from other places because when they were throwing the transponder across the start finish line <laughs> to get their best lap you know they didn't want to hit anybody right so, right yeah, yeah. he's got to figure it out it's so. all in the name of science yeah i um, love that uh, that whole conversation you guys had about uh, the pod or the uh the, the transponder and how to get the best oh, no. lap time and all that whole bit. So. <laughs> well, it's it, it beca- it became a reoccurring theme. Do you have any input on that? Uh, no, but I definitely agree with the the whole concept of throwing the transponder. That seems yes. like a no brainer. That was going to work. So that's the good one. We yeah. we came up with something new there on that show. We solved we solved the problem of where to mount it. It's to not mount it. It's to throw it. Yeah, <laughs> so. I mean it, it's it's related to. You know, I, I coach a lot of drivers, and I've coached a lot of young drivers coming up from karting and into 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 um, cars. And you know, one of the biggest uh, I was going to say challenges, but I don't I don't want that to sound quite sound like a big challenge. But is working with the parents, and particularly typically the father. And you know, there's nothing faster than a father's stopwatch, because what they do is they stand in one place. They take the, you know, they click the start and then they walk like six feet down closer to the, to the, the start of the straightaway, <laughs> click it again, and then take another six steps down. And they're constantly getting faster lap times. In, and then oh, they I complain about how the data or the official timing doesn't add up. So I'm sure that's actually a thing that has happened to you also. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> uh, well, you've been you've been a coach for a long time. Um we uh, we kind of want to hear some some stories of uh, of when you were racing um, a little bit. That was that was at least at least my my idea. That's the first place I would love to go for this show. Um, is uh, my first question was what was the worst race car you ever drove? Wow, the worst one. 
Yeah, because uh, I drive a lot of bad race cars. <laughs> I've got, I was just going to say, that's a pretty long list. Um, uh, you know, interestingly, there's a car that was, I, I'm going to say near evil, but it ended up, uh, we won the Daytona 24-hour race with it. Really? And it's actually, it, it, I mean, it is an interesting story. So it was a, a, a Lola with a Nissan motor, uh, LMP2 car in what was that 2003 and the, between the 2002 and 2003 season uh grand am which was the series that that sanctioned the race at the time uh, came in with a spec rear wing for the cars all cars had to all prototype cars had to have the same spec rear wing and so it was a single element wing the original lola wing was a double element wing and remember the first time we went testing with it, put this wing on the car, go to Daytona, we get out on the track, and the car is moving all over the place. Like just down the straightaway, it's moving all over the place. And, you know, it was described as the, you know, the classic, uh, uh, an arrow with the feathers pointing the wrong directions. And <laughs> that's the way the car was arrow-wise. And, uh, you know, I you'd be driving along and the car would just weave and move all over on the straightaway. And if another car was around you, you were passing somebody or something, the air off that car would change it and make it even worse. So, you know, you could be driving along and you're typically at Daytona, the, even the high banks and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's kind of a no brainer to drive. You can practically drive one hand and, you know, and, uh, you know, have a cup of coffee while you're driving almost. It's that easy. It's just a straightaway essentially. But in this car, you were, constantly hanging on because it was constantly trying to oversteer at whatever 170 miles an hour or something on the banking and it uh you know in in uh testing our a teammate driving a we had two cars on our team and he essentially spun on the straightaway and hit the wall um <laughs> and it was just it was evil that way and i remember the, uh the spec wing angle or spec wing was that like uh, spec angle and height and everything also everything it was just it was a design and it had to be and you know they took the the uh, uh, i guess the layout of the wing or the drawing of the wing or whatever and they sent it to Lola in England and their aerodynamicist ran it i don't know on CFD or in a wind tunnel or something like that and the day after driving it and getting out of the car white as a sheet thinking this thing's going to kill us um the day afterwards lola sent us a message and says don't drive the car in the track it will kill you uh, <laughs> but we ended up we ended up winning the 24-hour race with the car and and it was it was one of those races where you know we went there and in practice we were like four seconds off the pace it was just it was it was scary how bad we were and, you know, we kept trying to tune it and make it better and do all these things. And uh, I remember, so in qualifying, I go out to qualify and, you know, I'd kind of, I'd done my mental preparation and kind of got myself psyched up to go and lay down one fast lap. And I just <laughs> kind of screwed it up and, and went for it and got a lap that was like about a half a second off the pole. So fast enough that all the other teams went oh these guys have been sandbagging yeah and they thought you know we'd kind of just been laying back and now all of a sudden we were a big challenge to them 
So I think they got all worried. And, you know, the start of the race, I I, I had started the race and I kind of stayed close enough to the first few cars, again, just to put pressure on them. But our whole thing was we were just going to focus on what we could do and just try to run a faultless race, a perfect race. And it seemed like the closer we kind of hung on to everybody, the more they started making mistakes. Either, you know, cars would spin or they'd have a small off or, you know, they'd make some some mess up somewhere. And we just kind of kept moving along and moving along and moving along. And, you know, with two hours to go, uh, we were in the lead and our and our teammates were about a half a lap behind us. And and the next car behind us was like a lap down on us. So we were like, oh, wow. hmm, this, this is actually turning out okay. You know, it's pretty interesting when you just focus on your own thing and not worry about what everybody else is doing. And uh, and then we had kind of one big other hiccup at the end where with two hours to go, within two laps of each other, no, I guess three laps of each other, both cars, first of all, our teammates' car, the wiring on the back of the car broke and it no longer had brake lights. So the officials immediately black flagged them. They came into the pits to start the repair. And then like a lap later, a couple laps later, I get the message that our brake lights have gone out and we're going to have to pit to repair them. And I'm coming down the front straight at Daytona, coming into term one. And the team, the team manager who I'd worked with for a long time and was kind of one of those guys that uh, – I don't know. He and I were just on the same page all the time. Mm-hmm. He he comes on the radio and says something like, the weather looks good to the end of the race. And at that point, I look over at the dash and I see the rain light, the little up-down switch that you just turn the light on for if you're running in the rain. Holy so cow. Like, <laughs> so I come into the brake zone. I reach over, click the rain light on, get down to the end of the brake zone, downshift through the gears. As I come off the brakes, I reach over, turn the light switch off, turn the lights <laughs> off. Turn the corner, drive along, get to turn oh, three. Oh, that's rad. I love that. <laughs> Spend the last two hours of the race turning the rain light on and off every time we got to the brake zone. Holy and, God. For two hours? Yeah. And I mean, the funniest <laughs> part was every now and then, you know, you'd be in the middle of traffic with cars on either side. And it's like, I can't take a hand off the wheel here. Yeah. So you wouldn't do it. And all of a sudden, I get a message on the radio. You know, officials are looking at the back of the car. And it's like, okay, that was the hint. Make sure. And the worst, the funniest part was we had an in-car camera and nobody noticed that we were doing it. <laughs> really? Now, would you have been, uh, would you have been pulled in or disqualified for that? Or? We just would have been, we just would have had to come in and uh, fix the car, fix, repair it. Yeah. yeah lose so, a bunch of time. Yeah. Yeah. And as it was, we just kept on going and finished the race and got our Rolexes at the end of the race because of <laughs> oh, it. Oh, that's so cool. So when you just so, tell them you're not using brakes. Yeah, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's a good, that's a good story. So, <laughs> and so, the car was evil, also. Huh? So when yeah, you... so it was one of the worst. I mean, it was a great car in many ways, other than this aero change that made it evil to drive, and yet, you know, just kind of proves the point that if you just kind of do your stuff and focus on kind of your own performance and just really do the best you can and have a faultless run you're probably going to beat a lot of guys that mess up. Now, while using manual brake lights, does it start becoming habit after two hours? It uh, Actually, after actually, you'd be surprised at how quickly that becomes a habit. 
it's just you know within a few laps it's like okay that's what you do every time you down you break that's awesome (laughs) so that's a good story (laughs) and and don't ask me whether i ever you know turn the brake light on early Oh yeah, the green light on early just to throw somebody off, scare them off a little bit. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I can't imagine a professional like you would have done that. No, no never. No, back <laughs> off, dude. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't imagine somebody putting uh, LED lights in the back of a Honda. Hey man, I've only got 130 horsepower. I'm up against 220 horsepower. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> I need every help, every little help I can get. Right, right. Um, it, it, I guess, I guess my next question would be, what was the, what was the best car you ever drove? If, if that was, that sounds like a, an awesome car that uh, accidentally got bad. What, what, uh, what was your favorite thing you ever raced? Well, usually when somebody says, what's your favorite car to drive it, it will be, my usual answer is the next one. Uh, cause I can't wait to drive the next one. But, um, uh, you know, when I drove Indy cars, I drove for a very underfunded team, Dale Coyne Racing, who was way, way underfunded even compared to today. And I didn't know I didn't know that you drove for them. They're I think they're right near me in Chicago area. Yeah. 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 They're right off of yeah, right off of fifty seven there. Or fifty yep. fifty five, yep. fifty five, yeah. 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 Dale's one of the greatest people I know and and, and uh <clears throat> but you know, at that time that was the time in IndyCar racing, you know, in the early nineties when Teams would replace the chassis every single season, so it was a brand new chassis every single season. Uh, there was a battle between Lola and Reynard, and well, Penske built their own car for a while there, and and you know it was a battle between Chevy Ilmore and Ford Cosworth, and they were updating their engines, you know, if not if not every year or every every half a year, every year at least. So I was driving a two year old chassis with a four generation old engine. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have the latest and greatest stuff, but I'll tell you what, an Indy car with that weighs what they were a little over fifteen hundred pounds, you know, in the eight to nine hundred horsepower range, you know, six seven thousand pounds of downforce, it just the I mean they beat the crap out of you physically, like they hurt your body. Yeah, I believe that. But you know, the come out of a slow corner. You know, I, I love the street running racing on street circuits. You'd come out of a street circuit corner, uh, stand on the throttle and thing. It just kind of, it, it would just squirt out of a corner. It, it was just, it was, and then, you know, places like Phoenix on the oval, we would, uh, I remember we saw 4.6 G's in the corners. Wow. And, you know, you're lapping that track in under 20 seconds. So in 20 seconds, probably... I don't know, I'm going to say close to half that 20 seconds. So maybe five seconds of 4.6 Gs, five seconds of straightaway, five seconds of 4.6 Gs, five seconds of straightaway. And you do that for two hours straight. Oh, my goodness. And your body hurts, but, you know, you're just, it's like being swung around, uh, you know, the old rock on the end of a string kind of a thing. So, yeah, an IndyCar is just, it's... The pure fun level, the no, nothing I've ever driven is any is near that. But I would say that the, you know, like I said, they really do hurt your body. So there were yeah. times you get out of it and go, oh man, I'm glad that race is over because I'm hurting pretty bad. The, uh, I'm not super familiar with Andy from that era. Were you doing street courses with cars then or no? Yep. So we ran, you know, street circuits in well, 
Long like Beach. Long Beach Grand Prix and Long Beach, uh, um, Toronto, Vancouver, my hometown. Um, okay. uh, you know, that was, you know, the series. And I still think it's one of the one of the things that's great about IndyCar racing. But, you know, we would run. I don't know. Quarter of the quarter of the races would be on street circuits. Quarter of them of them would be, or maybe more, would be on, you know, permanent road circuits like Road America and Mid Ohio and uh, places like that. You know, Portland and things like that and Laguna. And then you then we go to like the small ovals like Nazareth and Milwaukee and Phoenix, the one mile ovals. And then we go to Indy and Michigan, um, the super speedways. So. You know, a guy that was the champion of that series, you had to be great at everything. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's uh, when you think about it that way. That's really diverse racing. That's a lot of facets and the craziest cars. But yeah, and, and you know, at that time, you know, there was you know Rick Mears, Mario Andretti, Michael Andretti, Alan Jr., uh, Nigel Mansell had come over from Formula One after winning the World Championship. Um, uh, Bobby Ray Hall, uh, um, um, you know, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, but you know, Emerson Fittipaldi, uh, you know, it was just, it was, it was unbelievable the level of of driving talent, and you know, it was about as tough a racing as I think there has ever been in motorsport at any time that that era. So, you know, and and at that time. You know, you would they would start 28 cars for a race, and typically there'd be 32, 33 cars showing up to qualify. So, you know, one of the toughest races was just to make it into the field if you were like a low budget team like we were, and you know, you you had to qualify, and if you didn't qualify in the top 28, you packed up and went home. So it was uh, it was it was tough stuff, but uh, um, yeah. yeah. Fantastic many, as well. How many cars were typically, uh, you know, in qualifying? Well, all 32, 33 cars would be on track. Okay. Yeah. All, and all at the same time? On a road course, yeah. I mean, uh, actually, they, we'd break them in half. They'd break them in half. So you go half half the cars would go out at one session and then the next half. But, uh, okay. um, you know, and then oval, oval qualifying is always single car qualifying, which is mm-hmm. one of the most difficult things that – has ever been invented in motorsport, you know, to pull on a, on a track on cold tires and one warm up lap and you're going and it's like, just hang on for dear life and hope that the car sticks and go quicker than you've ever gone before. Cause you need to yeah. qualify and get it in the show. Uh, what, uh, what was, uh, you never actually raced the Indy 500. You had a problem with the car, correct? Yeah. Um, what, what what was it like driving there? Like driving on the the big Indy 500 oval. What was it, like? What's that like? It's fast. <laughs> I would imagine. But. Yeah. You know, if 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 anybody has ever anybody listening to this has been to the Speedway, they can understand just the size of the place. You know, it, it's massive. It's it. You know, it doesn't show how big it is on TV. I mean, it show it looks big, but not as big as it really is. And you know, you go there and you look at the track, and you think, oh, that can't be too too bad. Um, but the first time you go down that front straightaway at 220, 230 miles an hour, and you get the turn one, and you know, you know, you have to do it flat with your foot flat to the floor, and yet 
your foot just wants to lift because it looks like there's a hairpin in front of you with a concrete wall on the outside of it. Uh, so, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, I think a lot of people, particularly, you know, road racing people kind of look at oval racing and go, yeah, how hard can it be? You know, it's just driving in circles kind of thing. Well, the precision that it takes to go fast at a place like Indy or any oval track is it's, it's the precision of a road course times a thousand. And, yeah. you know, and then, you know, there's a certain amount of, you know, an IndyCar at, oh, at that time when I was there, you know, if you were, if you were if, during, like you'd kind of pull out in the track and if you kind of warmed up a little slow, if you were in the 210 miles an hour range, it felt like you were going to die. Like, you'd go through a corner and the car would be moving around all over the place. And it just felt like, you know, if you went half a mile an hour faster, the car would just spit off the track and hit the wall. So what you did was you went 10 miles an hour faster (laughs) because the car would just stick better because of the aero downforce. And so, you know, working through that, that mental challenge. uh, Yeah. It's, it's one of the more difficult things that any driver has to face. Um, and, you know, Indy is obviously it's built up as, you know, this the most historic and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I went there with you know, something that I wanted to do since I was five years old. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, big expectations, probably, you know, a stupid amount of expectations and pressure I'd put on myself and, you know, promises to sponsors that I'd made uh, t- to get the money to get there and, yeah. you know, a lot going, a lot, a lot on the line. And, you know, it's, a, uh, you know, I don't know of too many, uh, racetracks where you see as many grown men in tears <laughs> as a place like that. It's yeah. just, it's, it's, it, it's tough. How, uh, he, your car lit on fire, didn't it? Yeah. So I'd, uh, how bad I, was that? Yeah. It was, a. Uh, practice session on the friday prior to the first qualifying weekend and uh i'd gone out my teammate was behind me and eric bachelard and uh second lap coming between turns three and four the most freak weird never happened before never will happen again in the future you know a fuel regulator that was kind of up sits up on top of the motor it cracked just cracked and methanol fuel under a massive pressure squirted forward and into the cockpit on top of me. So this methanol fuel was on top of me and, and I don't know what caused it, but it lit on fire. And essentially the cockpit would now was on fire and I'm at 220 miles an hour and it's 1800 degrees is pretty hot. Yeah. That's uh, as bad as it gets. That's as bad whether, as it gets. Whether you're wearing, you know, a full driving suit and everything else. Um, so, you know, you kind of go into panic mode and you can't breathe because there's no no oxygen getting in. So by the time, about the time the car caught fire to the time I, I got out of the car and people got to me and doused me with water to put the fire out, um, it was over 40 seconds. And I did... I, I hate to admit it in some ways, but I did the stupidest thing anybody could ever, ever do. And that is in the middle of it. And I didn't even realize this until kind of after the fact. But, 
in the middle of this whole thing because I can't breathe. I'm thinking, you know, I'm, it's like I'm drowning. Like I can't breathe. There's no air getting into my lungs. And, and, you know, this it's burning my hands, mostly from actually from my gloves were soaked with sweat. And when you looked at the gloves afterwards, they didn't look burnt that bad, but I guess it just turned all the sweat to steam and steam burned my hands. Gotcha. Um, and then, you know, it was sort of getting up underneath and into my helmet a little bit. But in the middle of this whole thing, when I'm trying to get air, just as I'm coming to a stop, a video that I saw afterwards showed I actually reached up and opened my visor. And <laughs> within half a second, the flames obviously went up inside my visor and burned oh my gosh. that part of my face. And, like, you know, I opened it and closed it in literally half a second it was i realized what was what how stupid it was yeah um and uh yeah so then i spent uh qualifying weekend in intensive care at methodist hospital oh. uh, yeah. what, what what year was that by the way 93 I, okay yeah that's yeah. that's uh that, that's a that's a how did you get stopped how did like you're going 200 miles an hour you just instantly hit the brakes or what was your th- like yeah, I don't know how you prepare yourself to deal with that, you know, it, but you know, it's it's that's when the whole your programming, your habits, your instincts kick in and you know, you're I'm coming through 2 and 3 at that speed and you know, just before as I'm going into 3, I you know, I looked in the mirror and Eric Bachelor, my teammate is behind me and we know that there's nobody else on track because we were the only two cars that went out for that we're headed out right away for that practice session. So you know, I, my first thought was dive down to the bottom of four and head to pit lane. But at the same time, because I'm on fire, I also lifted out of the throttle and started going to the brakes. And so I knew that if I dove down to the inside, Eric's probably tucking to the inside. So if I came to the down to the bottom of the track, I'd probably hit and we'd crash. Mm-hmm. So I kind of stayed up wide went around the outside of four and then started to kind of gradually bring it down after I noticed that he'd gone by me. He actually said later that he could feel the heat from my car as he passed me. Oh, Um, wow. And, uh, you know, and then kind of just brought it down and brought it down. I was still partially on the track. I couldn't get the car all the way down into pit lane because I couldn't get it slowed down and in there while trying to see and catch my breath and all those kinds of things. Oh, is that wild? It's, uh, it, it actually... The first people that got to me were uh, a couple of crew members from the Budweiser Bernstein IndyCar team, and uh, they got to me, and then the safety crews, and uh, my team owner, Dale, ran the length of the pit lane, who, if anybody sees Dale, kind of imagine him uh, running uh, the length of pit lane at Indy. It's, uh, there's, a, there's an image for you, <laughs> uh, and I say that in the nicest way because, I mean, he and my wife were sitting on the timing stand in pit lane and saw me from the because we were down almost the other end of pit lane towards the exit, and I stopped at the entry and uh, you know of course my wife is seeing all this with me jumping out of the car and wiggling around like bacon in a frying pan so mm-hmm. yeah pleasant experience. I, well, you you can't really tell. Uh, was there any permanent damage from that, like burn wise, or no? Because yeah, I mean, you, so, you don't you don't look like you're you know a crazy burn victim you know. But. Uh, well, the one thing I would say is if you're ever going to get hurt, getting hurt in the month of May at Indy, 
you know, the best people in the world are at Methodist, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Dr. Tom Southern to this day is a guy that he's a Burns plastic surgeon expert kind of guy. And, you know, he just uh, did all the right stuff to help me. You know, there, I've got some scars my neck and around my eyes a little bit and you can see if sometimes and i've got no feeling in my fingertips because they just they got burnt really really bad there were really? third degree burns on them there was nothing left of them um wow so yeah but uh that's a wild story man the that's that's just, that's too fast to get that hot <laughs> yeah you know the the most terrifying part of the whole experience is when I'm laying in bed in intensive care and the doctor says, uh, you can't drive for a month. And all I can think about is I have to get back in the car and qualify and get this car into the field. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's actually the, that was the most painful part of the whole experience, I think. I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. How, how long did you actually run Indy cars? Mm, well, over a period of about four years, yeah, that's about what I thought. Yeah. You, you know, it was probably, you know, I probably, if you added up four years, I probably did two years. 93, I did all but Indy. Um, and 94, I did about half a season. And then like in 91, 92, I did, you know, three races and two races and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, what it what it ended up doing was... It just, uh, you know, the the good thing is, I guess, is once you've driven an Indy car, you are a Indy car driver, yeah. and and <laughs> watch out for this guy. <laughs> yeah, you know. So, actually, towards the end of '93, I, I, you know, I got a couple of calls from sports car teams, IMSA sports car teams, saying, "Would you come and test our car?" And you know, I ended up 90, at the end of '93. I did that, and it led to an opportunity to do. Um, do what uh, part part of the season in in IMSA in a, in a prototype sports car in in ninety uh, four, mm-hmm. um, and you know and at that point these teams were now paying me, you know I didn't yeah. have to look for sponsors I didn't ha- I had to all I had to do was drive, and <clears throat> you know after many years of not knowing how. My wife and I were gonna, you know, even eat that week, um, or pay the rent or anything like that. It was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty welcome thing when sports car teams came along and said, uh, "We'll pay you. We'll pay you well to drive our cars." Yeah. Like, hmm, I okay, that. I could do that. And how many years did you uh, did you race high level sports cars? Like fifteen, sixteen? Yeah, something like that. Um, you know, I guess the last season that I really did kind of. Uh, the last time I did Daytona was what was that, oh nine something like that I guess. Um, but in the last in those few years leading up to that, you know, combination of the economy and uh, you know, I'd spent a uh, I was doing a lot of coaching and I absolutely loved doing that as well. But uh, one of the one of the coaching situations I was in kind of really. In a way, it kind of took me out of the driver's market for about two seasons um, because it was kind of like coach us, but and you'll drive a little bit as well. So it kind of took me out of the the market. And okay, you know that world. If you're not if you're not in the market for 
constantly. Like if you're out of it for two weeks, people forget about you. And okay. so I kind of, I, you know, I, I lost a few opportunities to drive because of that. I'm not complaining because I was, I'd gotten to the point where I was getting a little tired of the chasing it all the time. I'd done that for 20, 30 years kind of thing. And uh, so after not having to chase it, um, it was just really pleasant to be in a position where somebody asked me to drive, I drive. And, and fortunately for me, I love coaching as much as I love driving. So it's, uh, it's, it's not like there are some drivers that become coaches because they fall back on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've never looked at coaching as a fallback. It's, it's been, it's equal. That, that's, uh, that's not a bad, uh, that's not a bad way to be, uh, that's that's it seems like you, you you meet a lot of older race car drivers and it's like you know you feel bad for them and now it's like because they're not racing anymore not to say that you're older and you're not racing professionally nice save. but that, that <laughs> but that's that's <laughs> well, <I am> uh, <laughs> you don't look that old to me but that's that's awesome that you that you're uh as happy or happier than uh you know than the thrill of racing um how many guys are you working with on a on a like in a given year nowadays? Oh, that that changes year to year, and actually this year I'm I'm purposely I've cut back. Uh, I've got you know one full time driver that's racing in the IMSA, what is now the Prototype Challenge, which he's, he's, he has one of the new Ligier LMP3 cars, and. Um, Awesome. I've got one of those. Got a couple of them, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, so I'm, I'm coaching there. I'm, uh, I'm going to be doing a little bit of coaching. I'll, I'll see how this works out. But uh, so I'm going to France the end of, oh, wow. uh, end of March to coach a driver um, in an open wheel series in, in Europe. And we'll kind of see how that works oh. out. Um uh, I just, uh, you know, in the last, especially the last few years, the more than 200 nights in a hotel room uh, every year and the hundreds of thousands of miles of air travel every year. And air travel is not getting any more fun than it used to be. Um, it, you know, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit tired of the travel part of it and trying to do more, um, I guess, provide more driver training tools, resources to people that I can get out there in, in bulk. You know, when I coach a race driver, I coach one driver and then I coach yeah. another driver. And it's like, you know, so maybe in one season I might have an impact on six drivers. Well, some of the things I'm doing with e-courses and webinars and videos and things like that, you know, they're getting out to thousands of drivers and that feels really, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I, I get to have a bigger impact in some ways. Yeah. What all uh, what all resources have you been working on lately? I've seen uh, I've seen just over Facebook that uh, you know that you've been been doing a lot of different new things uh, just this season. So the, the I guess um, well hey hey the podcast um, yeah you know it, it, yeah I I think that it's a it's a great resource because it you know the the goal is that tips for drivers come out of that so that's that's one thing that's new um myself and uh, another coach um peter kraus peter and i have started doing we call them virtual track walks so essentially they're they are like peter and i going 
on a track walk with Adam and Austin around Laguna or Road America or Watkins Glen or uh, Road Atlanta. I mean, you know, and we basically talk about, you know, here's where the line is. You know, notice this little piece in the pavement here. You want the car lined up here. Um, this part of the track has more grip than this part of the track. So you want to change your line on over here. And, hmm. you know, so we share that kind of information. But we we did a webinar version of one of them last year, and it was really, really good. But the problem with a webinar is typically it's it's you know it's it's on a particular day, and we thought well we could record these things. So Peter and I have been getting together. In fact, I just went and spent a couple of days with him, and we recorded three more of them. And uh, we keep joking that they're you know the click and clack the car guy yeah show. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're we're kind of trying to be the we're not going to be in, anywhere near as entertaining as funny as those guys are, but hopefully more educational in terms of the information that people get out of the track walk videos. And they're, I got to tell you, they're, I guess they've surprised me a little bit of just how useful they are for a driver. Right. Because, you know, so many drivers go to a track and, you know, we get so few laps that, uh, you know, that you, you need to maximize what you can. And, so if you know if somebody's going to Sonoma or you know Lime Rock or Coda or something like that for the first time or the twentieth time and they want to get refreshed, it's a great way of doing that. So those have been really really cool. Um, I, I think still the the one resource that um, and I'll be honest, I mean it, it has not gone over as well as I want is the e courses. These e courses that I've created are, I guess they're. The, the people, the feedback I get from the people that get them, buy them, uh, they're going, these are fantastic. They're what a great tool. And yet they're harder to sell. And I think part of it is just, you know, drivers look at it and go, what can I learn about driving by looking at my computer or my phone, you know? And how, how many of those have you done now? So I, I have two of them, um, Performance okay. Driving 101 and Inner Speed Secrets 201, which I think is you know, for years I've been doing these inner speed secrets seminars, workshops, yeah. and they're tough to because you have to get people in a room. Well, I've basically taken that and put it into an e-course that somebody can do on their own on their own time. So I look at yeah, those. I, things I, and, I really like that one. That was oh, okay. that was very good. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, I, I, I think I went through it like six times, <laughs> over and over and over. Well, okay, so hopefully that doesn't mean that I've done a poor job to explain it or that you're a slow learner. What are those two? <laughs> no, it just uh, before no. I went to a race, I would uh, I would uh, click through and especially like the uh, I, I really found it useful, like like sitting in the car. I still do the, you know, touch the opposite uh, knee with my hand and just yep. try to try to focus myself and, and, and really work on eye focusing, um, you know, near, far, near, far. Yeah. Uh, some some of the things really stuck with me. Every time I sit in in my race car, I kind of you know visualize what track I'm at, and, and I, I really I really dug that one. It was very cool. So yeah, yeah. So I, I guess um, you know, and then I'll do some more webinars as well. So Austin, you asked you know what those are the I guess those are the the key things that I'm working on. And oh, I guess uh, I've got a new book coming out this year as well. So oh, oh awesome. But what's a yeah? What's the new book about? Well. And driving it's, uh, speed. Let mode. me guess. Let me guess. Driving. <laughs> wow. How do you? How do you? You're really in a rut. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So guess what? I'm going to throw you off here. I yeah. actually have two books coming out this year, and one of them is not about driving. Ooh. 
boy. <laughs> well, tell us about them. What, uh, what, okay. what, what, well, what are we in store for? So a, f- a few years ago, a fellow in Australia contacted me, and he's a pilot. Oh, cool. And, and he said, and he races, he, he raced a Formula V as well. And he said, you know, I got your books and, you know, to help me as a driver. But he says, they are a great tool for pilots. And he says, I've actually given them to a few pilots. And we kind of went back and forth. And he said, hey, do you want to adapt your book and aim it at pilots? So over the past three years, he and I have been going back and forth. And we've adapted my driving books, a lot of it on kind of the mental part of it, uh, for pilots. And, Interesting. And we're actually going to self-publish that one because we kind of wanted to see that process. And it's actually just got submitted in today, actually, or yesterday, I guess it was. Oh, wow. And so hopefully within the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a book called Performance Pilot. So does that and, mean does that mean you had you had to expense uh, some some flying lessons? You know, boy, am I stupid for not coming up with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, I've spent a lot of time around pilots and I've done a right. few things and I took a couple of helicopter lessons. And um, But mostly, you know, from a – I looked at it strictly from the human performance perspective mm-hmm. yeah. and left it up to Phil Wilkes, who's the pilot and um, now a training officer for a very, very large, uh, very Australian-type airline um, and, you know, former – Air Force pilot and everything, and let him kind of deal with the technical part with piloting. Piloting. I don't know if that's the right word, um, <laughs> but uh, I just made it up. So uh, I, you're close. It yeah, should have been right in the ballpark. Piloting 101 could have been the book name. Yeah. There, that could have been. It. So, anyway, so that's that's one thing. But um, I actually, uh, so I have one that's coming out, and it's called "The Lost Art of High Performance Driving." Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's due on in June or July. Okay. And it's in the final drafts and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I'm excited about this one. I heard you talking about it on uh, on the Ten Tenths podcast a while back. So yeah, you know, it's not aimed at the really hardcore enthusiast. It's it's geared more for the, you know, if you look out there and you go, well, how many how many people are there out there who drive performance cars? But they've maybe not even been to a track before. But they read Road and Track. They read Car and Driver. You know, they love cars. And, you know, so they're, it's aimed a little bit more that way or the track day guy. But really what it, it, the main focus of the main theme of it is, is, you know, we've got stability control. We've got traction control. We've got paddle shift, semi-automatic. Uh, you know, we've got all, these, all this technology in cars today. Do we really need to know how to drive? Well, obviously, you know what my opinion is. Um, yeah. It seems like you almost – driving some of the cars with stability control, they make you look like such a hero on track. It's amazing. And and I don't know. It's it's really weird getting in, getting in a car with – even with ABS versus my old race car. Yeah. It's totally – it's a different experience. It's, it's yeah. really fun to see what you can get away with, though. Like you start trying things that oh, you yeah, know would yeah. never work and you just let the car save yeah. itself. Let, let's see how deep I can go and how good this these brakes are. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And all of a sudden, the pedal the pedal feels like it's on on the cheap massage bed at the hotel. You know, <laughs> do you do you use those cheap massage beds? 
No, no. I, I'm talking stereotypical 1990s <laughs> TV here. <laughs> I live in LA, so we just have earthquakes all the time. You know, yeah. any given night, <laughs> right, right. you know, no quarters needed. It's, you know, Mother yeah. Nature. Yeah, I probably wouldn't recommend anybody using it, any <laughs> anything you have to insert a quarter into in a hotel. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you 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 mentioned about uh, you know playing around with those things. Uh, a few years ago, for a number of years, I did a bunch of, of uh, kind of, I guess, test driving for BMW and comparing to different products and things. And I remember one of the times, one of our tests was a simple slalom, just a you know a series of I can't remember how many cones, equally spaced, and you know part of the test was to see how quick I could get through the slalom at what speed. Uh, you know, from car to car. And I can remember getting a brand new 7 Series BMW. And I I think like my record at that time was in a, uh, an M Coupe, BMW M Coupe. And let's say it was 40 miles an hour, I could get through the slalom. And, you know, hey, that M Coupe's a really nimble little car. So I get back with this 7 Series BMW and I set the cruise control for 40 miles an hour. And I take my my feet off the pedals and I just drive through and just turn the steering wheel. And I let the stability control do everything, like manage the throttle for me. And it was really cool because, I mean, obviously that car has got some serious torque. You know, I turn in the corner and it wouldn't quite, you know, around the first cone and it wouldn't quite grip enough. So it would kind of slow it down and go. And then I'd kind of straighten the wheel up between the cones and just go. And it would accelerate again. And I turn it like so it would modulate the throttle on and off through this thing just with the stability control. And the amazing thing is I'd get through there at 40 miles an hour, the same speed that I could drive an M coupe through there. And it was. And it would just do it. It would fix it. <laughs> yeah, it would just fix it. So it was. It kind of showed me what those systems are capable of. That's incredible. What year was that? I'm going to say that was maybe ten years ago. So. Also, oh, this is ancient you know, stuff nowadays. Yeah. Now. In, st- in stability control world, that's old stuff. Yeah. You wow. know, I mean, stability control ten years ago. Well, first of all, the BMW stability control system was better than some other ones. You know, yeah. it. You know, as you know, you've had probably experienced a stability control system in some cars that basically, you know, you get in a little bit of trouble and it just shuts everything down and makes you yeah, kind of yeah, slaps yeah. you in the side of the head and says, "You're an idiot. We're taking over." Um, you know, that system didn't really do that, but you know, just the way the new systems are. I mean, they become much more sensitive, and um, it's it's pretty amazing what they can do, but going back to your point adam is you know they can also make somebody look like a hero and if they if the driver doesn't know their look it's the stability control that's making them look like a hero um they're asking for a lot of trouble yeah i I, a few a few shows ago i told the story about a guy i instructed in the rain it was his first event it was with chin motorsports and he had bought like the one day package and it was buckets cats and dogs rain and he had some sob this is probably eight years ago but like a brand new sob with like good tires and stuff and i can't believe the way he was driving it the car just kept fixing everything and and he would come back he would pull into the pit and his he he would give his girlfriend a thumbs up and be like yeah i got this you know (laughs) (laughs) He, he wasn't doing anything right 
and the car would just fix everything. It was, it, but it, as a passenger, it was terrible. It was terrifying. Like as a, as, as an instructor, um, uh, it, but he didn't learn anything. He just, all he learned is that, you know, it, it would go where he steers and it would fix all of its own problems, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, I, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's fine if a driver, you know, deliberately uses a system and kind of mm-hmm. goes, okay, I'm going to let the car come out and I'm going to do this. And it's just going to, I know it's going to kind of lean against the stability control. And I'm using that in a very deliberate way. I think that's perfectly fine. But if a driver, if it's like your case here is, you know, it's just, it's saving the guy every corner. Um, yeah. Every, and he's not like aware of it. Every single corner. Austin, didn't your FRS uh, have a problem with stability or traction or ABS or something? Yeah, so in the FRS, uh, you couldn't turn the traction control all the way off unless you did like what they called the pedal dance. Yeah. So, which is like a, a diagnostic mode, I guess. Um, but it actually it changes the brake bias just a little bit. Uh, but I kept hitting ice mode. A lot of these new cars, if you go from full throttle to like full hard pressure brake uh, too quickly, it'll actually hit ice mode and the pedal will go like just hard, and you know the ABS system will take over and slow the car down. So it's uh, kind of kind of interesting. Was was that the reason that you had? Didn't you hit? Didn't you find a wall accidentally? Yeah. So or was that, no. Or was so, that some throttle thing? No. Uh, on the FRS, um, at least the the early cars, if you had a check engine light uh, at red line, traction control would reactivate itself. I actually have a video on my my YouTube of me. You know, third gear red line on the interstate with the check engine light, and you can just see it. Just even just going straight at red line, the traction control lights turn back on. So, and that happened at the exit of turn uh, turn twelve at Road Atlanta, coming down the hill, oh, like 112 miles an hour. Traction control decided it was a, a good time to turn back on. That's the place to have it too. Yep. Huh? Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> but that, very very little that, damage. Yeah. And it was like before you made your first payment, right? Yeah, that car had a lot of track time on it before I made my first payment. A lot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, but the uh, <laughs> the stability control uh, ice mode stuff still freaks me out. Every every time I, I read a story about ice mode on a racetrack, it's like ugh, I don't know if I want to buy anything new. I think I'll stick with my old my old things that I can bleed myself easily, you know. But. So it did, I, it, I think the, I, I think the one of the interesting ones is that whole, um, uh, uh, what's it, the essentially the automatic braking system. Um, I don't know if you've you've probably heard about guys who have these on their cars. You know the, you know the, you you the, see them where the you, know, if you drive ones? towards a, a wall or a parked car, yeah. it'll just automatically put the brakes on. Yeah. <laughs> and guys on the track will be going through a corner and be close enough to the car in front of them. That the system activates the brakes right smack in the middle of the corner. Oh my gosh, that'd be scary. And it, yeah. And if you've got the stability control turned off, it just hammers the brakes. And you think about what hammering the brakes in the middle of a corner can do to a car. Yeah. That has the stability control turned off. Uh, and yeah. maybe with a inexperienced driver, I mean that's a, that's a dangerous deal. Yeah. Yeah. Very dangerous. Yeah. I believe I believe the government is mandating. Um, some sort of 
stability control in all cars or, or something coming up soon. But yeah, so maybe there's some why... there's some big mandate with with that to like 2020 or whatever. But see, we better not let journalists know about this because then that's what they're going to blame wrecking cars on racetracks on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the notorious ham-fisted journalist uh, crash. <laughs> Um, well, speaking of uh, speaking of ham-fisted, I've almost I've been pretty ham-fisted at Mid Ohio. Uh, what are you doing in uh, in in April, uh, Ross? Well, I was thinking. I heard that there's this really awesome event called Grid Life, and I was kind of thinking that maybe I'd come and hang out at it. So that'd be fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe we should ask Chris if uh, if that's okay, Austin. What do you think he'd say? Uh, I don't know. I think you'd have to think about it for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. you know he doesn't we'll, we'll drive. Get, he doesn't drive as much as he used to. So yeah, we'll get we'll get back to you on that one, Ross. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no, it, uh, it's going to be fun having you out there. I'm excited about it. We're it's not it's not a festival event, but it's more of like a, a track battle HPDE event um, uh, for for the listeners. Um, but and there are still some spots available. We've got uh, a few spots in each run group. So. Um, check those out. Grid.life. There's, there's uh, links to the registration page. But uh, yeah, Ross is going to come out and and help make everybody faster. So that's going to be fun. But. Yeah, I'm looking forward. To, I, you know, I know we've got to still work out some of the details on what exactly we're doing and stuff. But uh, from the sounds of it, it's you know be able to kind of do some little debrief sessions throughout most of the day, and then towards the end, kind of do a a little uh, kind of mini workshop things with uh, with drivers, and hopefully give them a ton of. Uh, Quick little tips that'll make them quicker. That's uh, yeah. that's what that's what uh, that's what we're gonna do. Yeah, you uh, you came out to our uh, spring shakedown last year um, for an afternoon, and uh, yeah, it'll be cool to have you out on another one. So yeah, yeah, I know I know a lot of drivers liked uh, liked listening to you uh, uh, there. So hopefully, it's even more fun at slightly intimidating Mid Ohio, where a lot of these guys haven't been. So yeah, yeah, no, looking forward to that, and I also. Uh, uh, understand that uh, the Grid Life event on the Friday prior to the World Racing League event at Road America yeah. in May, the first yeah. weekend. And I'm actually going to race that WRL race that weekend. And so I'll probably be there to maybe ha- hang out a little bit at the cool. Grid Life part of it on Friday as well. So Maybe we get to record some live podcasts. Uh, at these things too. Now I really want to go to that Friday. Yeah, you should probably just... Cut out of your sister's my sister's graduation. graduation. Yeah, yeah. Just cut out of that early. You don't need to go to dinner with them. Yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll Facetime that one in. There you go. Yeah, there you go. We'll, we'll figure it out. But yeah, I would lo- at, at, in April if we've got time. I'd love to uh, to do a sit down show if you're there at night. So yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. I'm actually uh, I'm trying to work out my travel plans right now, but I may be coming almost directly from Paul Ricard in France uh, to oh, Mid wow. Ohio. So oh, jeez. Uh, you're gonna yeah. be tired, man. Yeah, well, that's uh, <laughs> you know, in my world, I, I kind of go around my entire life tired, and that way, nobody knows the difference. That, so, that's that's us at at every one of our events. <laughs> yeah, so you'll we're, fit right in. We're really yeah. not that interesting of people. We're just constantly sleep deprived, which makes us interesting. <laughs> totally, exactly. <laughs> totally sleep deprived. Um, yeah. Currently, I am sleep deprived because of a grid life meeting I had until about eleven o'clock with Chris last night. <laughs> Oops! Ah. And I had to drive home in like a crazy thunderstorm. Um, said bye to Holly and Chris. Drove all the way through Chicago, hydroplane half the way through the city, home about midnight. Up at five thirty because uh, my three year old's banging on her door with her diaper off. So <laughs> it's a good time. It's a really good time over here. <laughs> 
But yeah, it, uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a fun year. But I mean, the that sounds very much like a track event. Somebody knocking on the door with their diaper off. I, I don't know too many guys with diapers, but uh, nope. at a grid life event, there are people with there are people with you know with minimal clothes on. Um, uh, do they make do they make Nomex diapers for endurance racers? I'm sure they have to. They have to. They make catheters. Um, I don't know if any. I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could go number two while, while I'm pedaling a car. <laughs> I, I I haven't even ever been able to go number one. But uh, has that uh, has that been a factor in in uh, pro endurance racing for you, uh, Ross? The the bathroom problem. No, I've never had that. Uh, you know, I I've gotten out of the car and it's like okay, time to go. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, I I, I look. I mean, you're you're. You're sweating, you know. It comes out in different ways, and and I think the other part is, uh, uh, I don't know. I think I think when we're really performing at our best, uh, our brains figure out how to shut down other functions in our body, and then I think yeah. that's what happens. So, now, I the very first year I did Daytona, the 24-hour race, I had a co-driver who got car sick. Oh no! And. I can remember having to get into the car after he'd gotten car sick in the car. Uh, like all over the car? On, on basically in the seat on him, oh, you know, because he's wearing a helmet. So it's kind of can't go very far, right? Yeah, uh, I know all about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, uh, he should he should have just uh, uh, put the uh, the old hand up the, the the helmet and pinched that jaw and swallowed it back down. It's it's not fun, but it's doable. That's that, that's that's my go to choice for uh, for being sick. Blowfish face, swallow it back down. <laughs> uh, I had a, a race at Sebring, the twelve hour race, where I got um, the uh, because of who I was the co driver had some problems i ended up having to drive i think out of the first i was at something like the first eight hours i think i'd driven six hours or something and it was a particularly hot day at sebring that year and and uh so i was getting pretty dehydrated and and i'm the car has got a drink bottle in it and i'm like drinking as much as i can well as the race went along i started getting sick and i started getting sick in my helmet and you know if you get the balaclava pulled up good and tight around your face it kind of helps a little bit but um, you know, this just kept getting worse. I'd get out of the car and I'd be dehydrated and, you know, trying to get something in. And then I'd have to get back in the car and I keep drinking because I think I got to keep getting putting fluids in me and I would just get sicker and sicker and sicker. And at, by the end of the race, uh, they had to cart me away and take me and put me on uh, IV to get fluids put back in me. And a couple of days later, the crew, somebody in the crew said, yeah, we kind of found out what happened there is – the drink bottle had not been cleaned out since the previous year. Oh, jeez. So <laughs> I kept taking in these fluids, and that was making me – that was giving me food poisoning. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, so yeah. So, But the worst part was uh, a guy who has become a really good friend of mine um, was kind of, I don't know, team manager slash running the team kind of stuff. And, and you know, I'd get out of the car, and he'd come over, and he'd help him. He'd go and clean my helmet and balaclava and then get it ready for me to get back in the car again. So oh. <laughs> I feel really bad for him. Yeah. Oh, food poisoning from the old dirty drink bottle. That's disgusting. Yeah, that's not a good thing to do. Oh, <laughs> I didn't I didn't see the, the end of that story. That's a bad one. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's so gross. Yeah. 
so, but you were you were talking about um, maybe less than fully clothed people like grid life. Uh, April at the festivals, of Mid Ohio, a little bit. You want? Yeah, not at April of Mid Ohio. No, it's <laughs> like that could be Parco weather. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you might you might see. I think it's usually dudes and boxers. It's not it's not all that much fun, but uh, uh, at the at the the festivals. But yeah, there's I, I haven't seen anything that I've actually wanted to look at really. But uh, that's not a good that's not a good say, uh, ad for grid life though. So we'll just say uh, uh, bikini girls everywhere. That that that's okay. it. That, everywhere <laughs> everywhere. So and working grid everything. So as as grid life. Ever talked to Burning Man? Uh, no, no. Wouldn't that be a so. cool event? I have you ever been to Burning Man? I, I I've read about it, but never. I've never been there. It sounds. I don't know anybody that's been there. I mean, I, I think the problem is illicit drugs and driving don't go together very well. No, that's true. And I guess there's some of that probably at Burning Man. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I think <laughs> there's more than some of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's just in the air. Uh, yeah. <laughs> although knowing Chris, Chris like knows the guy who runs Burning Man. So yeah, knows? right. <laughs> yeah, it probably has been brought up. I don't think there's any racetracks near there, though. But yeah, yeah, it's uh, on we, the we desert. Have, you have, just you make one. That's true. You could just make a dirt racetrack out there. Somebody's yeah. probably doing that at Burning Man. Like that's probably a thing. We should just but, charge charge a bag of Quickcrete for for entrance, yeah. and we can just make a track while we're there. I, I think that place pretty much like runs on a like a, a gift economy and and you can kind of do whatever you want. There's like no rules, so we can just bring a bunch of like off road like you know, track cars out there and, and build our own track. That could work. Yeah, it'd be perfect. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any rules there. <laughs> I mean, if if you if you race on a frozen lake, can you not also race on a dry lake you, as well? Yeah, it used to be like that. Yeah, flat. can't be too bad. Mm-mm. Speaking of which, have you ever done any off road stuff, Ross? Uh, no, I've done a little bit of, when I was involved with starting Dirtfish Rally School, I did a little bit of, uh, uh, just some, I never competed in a rally or anything like that, but I did some driving in rally cars and in the okay. dirt and in the trees and stuff like that. And went actually to England and did a, did a couple of days with a, a rally school over there to kind of learn a little bit. And actually it was really cool. I went to the second day we went to Wales to, uh, the famous Sweet Lamb stage of the Rally GP, GB. And, uh, you know, so I'm driving this Subaru rally car up the side of a mountain and the pouring rain is covered in mud and there's sheep running every which way. And it's like, man, this is what, (laughs) this is what it's supposed to be like. So, so that was about, that's about the only thing I've done, um, deliberately off-road. Okay. Uh, Yeah. But, uh, you guys did some ice racing, and I've done ice racing once. That's pretty cool. No pun intended there, but uh, <laughs> a little bit of a pun there. That that fits. I had it to throw good. that in for Austin, right? Yeah, but, I've been pretty good. I've been pretty good tonight. Yeah. I, I think uh, I, I've I've had this idea of pitching a uh, a break uh, a company to be the official uh, sponsor of like stop the puns in case Austin starts uh, starts rolling. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I maybe we should talk to Chris Miller over at Power Shop about that. <laughs> <laughs> you have the power to stop. Yeah, yeah. It, a nice sound effect goes off, and then we, it, it makes Austin pause from the uh, the puns. But <laughs> we we haven't we haven't gotten in a good pun roll for a while. But. No. Yeah, yeah. I I really loved Ice Autocross. I thought it was the the I I really thought it was like it was the best thing I've ever done in the wintertime. <laughs> <laughs> and I like skiing and stuff. But man, was that fun! That was so fun. Yeah. 
I did uh, one time I went ice racing in, in the interior of British Columbia. Uh, and they actually, they had a series at that time called Vets on Ice. And yeah, I remember you telling me about be, this before. What's, pardon me? Sorry. Oh, I was saying, I, I remember you, you talking about this before. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it was, it was, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, then, and they'd have like Corvettes or like dog fixing doctors. Chev- Chevettes. No. Oh, okay. Chevettes. <laughs> so, even better. Yes. It was just, and, and they were, you know, they were all, and they're all, it was all rubbered ice. So no studs on the tires. And, uh, you know, there'd be like 30 of these things, <laughs> you know, people pull these old Chevettes out of a wrecking yard and fix them up and. That's Away we cool. go. So it was pretty fun. Did Did you talk about that on the podcast a couple of years ago I th- or a year ago? I think that sounds familiar. Uh, yeah, I can't remember what I talked about last week. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm getting the uh, the note from my wife that she needs me to run in. So I think I got to hop out, hop off here. You guys can uh, feel free to chat if you want. Or I got to run and do some in April. I got to so. run and do some work stuff. Oh, Austin's uh, a slave to the man now. Wow. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. I could just stand, stay here and talk. <laughs> yeah. As long as Austin leaves the recorder on. You could, yeah. you could just yeah. start. Uh, you just a just monologue. List, list where people can find all of your things that, that you're producing now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of which, where's the best place to find all the uh, the track walk stuff? Uh, I haven't seen any of those. Uh, speedsecrets.com. Oh, that's on the website too. Okay. Yep. Yep. Everything I do is somehow stuck onto that speedsecrets.com site. So. Okay. And uh, and I I post a bunch of stuff on that Facebook page and things. So um, yeah, uh, and uh, the Speed Secrets Weekly uh, newsletter. I I always uh, like Tuesdays uh, when that comes out. So, yep. Um, the people should uh, should check that out. Sign up for it uh, when you're having your coffee on Tuesday morning or whatever. Uh, it's uh, it's a good read. There's always interesting articles on there. So yeah, it's uh, fun. It's fun because I get uh, other people to write articles and I write some stuff as well. But uh, yeah. It's it's fun seeing reading other people's perspectives. Some of them yeah. I agree with. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I, I I really appreciate you coming on again. We'll uh, we'll have to pick it up again in uh, in April in in person, hopefully. So yeah, yeah. I'll, I'm looking forward to that Mid Ohio uh, set April. I think eight nine something eight, like nine? that. Yeah, something eight, like that. Eight, yeah. Eight, Yes, yeah. like the first first eight, ten days of April. Yeah, somewhere yep. in there. Yeah. So looking forward uh, to that. See you guys there. I guess so. Yeah, right. check out uh, check out Ross at speedsecrets dot com. Anywhere else that uh, people should uh, should look for you? Oh, that's the easiest place. Okay, and yeah. uh, check out uh, the Grid Life event at Grid Life, and maybe you can come uh, hang out with Ross, give him high fives, and listen to us BS into microphones, uh, and and have fun with a race car or a track car or whatever you have. So yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, that's it for me. If you guys got anything else, right. go nuts. So. No, I think I'm good. All right, okay. you're the best, Ross. Appreciate yep. it, man. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Nice. <laughs> See you.